thinking of what the Reformation was, what the Reformers taught from Scripture that ends up being so foundational to our faith. And as I look back at the records of uh, what has been done on these Reformation or Church History Sundays, where sometimes we have a special speaker, sometimes I will speak, and I have spoken on Christ alone and faith alone, but not directly on some of the others. So this morning we're going to be going in the direction of Scripture alone. And as you know, the Protestant Reformation is seen as launching on October 31st, 1517, when a German monk by the name of Martin Luther posted to the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany, his 95 theses. And those theses were specifically challenging the Roman Catholic practice of selling indulgences that supposedly, if you purchase them, it would reduce the amount of time you would have to suffer for your sins. And so we remember that moment, that date in particular, but probably just as famous was something that Luther did at a meeting entitled the Diet of Worms on April 18, 1521. You, if you have watched a movie about Luther or read a book about him, have no doubt come across this speech. He says, quote, unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures. And then he adds to that, unless I'm convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason. I think that's important to stop and bring that up because he says not only whatever the Bible explicitly says, but whatever is a necessary consequence or a necessary deduction from scripture is actually a part of the teaching of scripture. He says, convince me on the basis of the Bible or on the basis of irresistible logic from the Bible. And then he says, For I do not trust, either in the Pope or in the councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves. And then he gets back to his main idea about the Scripture. He says, Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Scriptures or by clear reason, I am bound by the Scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recount anything of what he had taught from Scripture, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God help me. Amen. Amen. And that is such an inspiring and bold stand. And in essence, what he was saying there would come to be known as sola scriptura. Scripture alone. But that actually was not the first time that he had taken that sort of stand in public. There was another event called the Leipzig Disputation a couple years earlier in the summer of 1519. He was being hounded by a scholar named Johann Eck, who kept quoting all kinds of extra-biblical authorities, church fathers and writings of the church against him. How did Luther respond? He didn't get into a debate about church history or a debate from theologians. He kept coming back again and again, simply quoting the scriptures and pointing out what the Bible actually teaches. 
And in that conversation, in that discussion as well, he affirmed that popes and councils have made mistakes in the past, so they cannot be considered authorities on a par with Scripture. And you may know the story that one of the things that Eck tried to do to get Luther off, throw him off, and accuse him was to tell him that he sounded a lot like a man named John Huss from about a hundred years earlier. And Huss was a Bohemian, or now we would say a Czechoslovakian theologian who in that earlier generation had come to see some of these same things, but Luther really was not uh, remembering well what that was all about. So on a lunch break in that congregation, he went back and read up on some of the records of the Council of Constance that had gone against Huss. And he realized that actually he very much believed the core of what Huss was teaching. Even though that man had been condemned as a heretic by the church and had been burned at the stake for his faith, Luther came back and he was not afraid to proclaim that actually he was a Hussite. Not because he followed men, but because both of these individuals held to the same doctrine of Scripture. And he would go on to play on a line that Huss had said before he was persecuted. One thing you want to note is that in Bohemian, the word Huss means goose. And when he was going to be executed, Huss said something like this, you may kill a weak goose like myself, but more powerful birds, eagles, and falcons will come after me. Luther put it this way, today you burn a goose, but in 100 years a swan will arise from which, which you will prove unable to boil or roast. And he took that line from Huss as a kind of a prophecy that was actually being fulfilled in his own life and ministry, which, by the way, is why when you go into some Lutheran churches, their pulpit is crafted in the shape of a swan because he pictured himself as a swan that they weren't going to be able to roast. And mightily, the Lord actually gave Luther a long and fruitful ministry when he should have been killed by the Catholic Church, and he always was able by God's grace to evade that. Well, at the heart of Luther's claim was the issue of what is the final authority for determining theological matters. And he stated dogmatically that that authority was the Bible alone. That did not mean that he didn't care about church tradition that he didn't care about the writings of theologians of the past or the teachings of the church. He was a theologian himself. So we're not talking about what's been called nuda scriptura or solo scriptura, that the Bible is the only thing you can ever consult or that has any relevance to questions you have. The fact is that God has used many people in the past to help his people come to a greater and greater understanding of what the scriptures teach. In fact, we're here to remember some of those people from the Reformation. 
But the point is that ultimately there is one and only one way to judge the teachings of men to know whether those things are true or false, and that is the Scripture itself. And that is what we want to consider this morning, Scripture alone, sola scriptura, the most foundational of those five solas of the Reformation. But before we get into that, I want us to realize how it was that the Roman Catholic Church responded to the Reformers' teaching on this point. The most complete answer that they would give in this period was a gathering, a formal gathering of the leadership of the church in a city by the name of Trent, which is located in what is now Italy. And that took place on and off for like 18 years, 1545 to 1563, as all these bishops and others were coming together to consider, to evaluate, to decide on what the church would officially say regarding the Reformation. And those declarations that they came up with, which actually there are quite a few of them, they express the ongoing official positions of the Roman Catholic Church to this day. What the Council of Trent taught was reaffirmed by the Second Vatican Council in the 1960s, and it's as well affirmed in the current official catechism of the Roman Catholic Church, which was put out in 1992. And I want to share with you what Trent said on the topic we are considering. It was from their fourth session in 1546, and it lays out their conclusions on the doctrine of Scripture. They're talking about, quote-unquote, the gospel. And they say the gospel was before promised through the holy prophets in the holy scriptures. That sounds great. They go on to say, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, first promulgated with his own mouth and then commanded to be preached by his apostles to every creature as the fountain of all both saving truth and moral discipline. So up to that point, we're on the same page. They recognize the absolute authority of Scripture. But then things get muddy. They say, and seeing clearly that this truth and discipline are contained in the written books and, and the unwritten traditions. In other words, they are expanding their source of authority. Those unwritten traditions which, supposedly, received by the apostles from the mouth of Christ himself or from the apostles themselves, the Holy Ghost dictating, have come down even to us, transmitted as it were from hand to hand. So they're saying that in addition to the writings of Scripture, there was this whole other body of truth that didn't end up in writing, but that came from Jesus and the apostles and was passed down orally through the church, ended up in writing eventually. But these are these traditions of the church. And they're saying that is at the same level as the Bible. And so they come to this conclusion, the synod following the examples of the Orthodox Fathers, receives and venerates, listen to this, we receive and we venerate with an equal affection of piety and reverence all the books, both of the Old and New Testaments, that seeing, seeing that one God is the author of both, again, that's good, they say we receive with reverence 
and piety with affection, all the books of the Bible, as also, in other words, we give the same kind of affection to the said traditions, as well those appertaining to faith as to morals, as having been dictated either by Christ's own word of mouth or by the Holy Ghost, and preserved in the Catholic Church by a continuous succession. All right. So now they are explicitly bringing out the church itself as the sort of manager of whatever these things are, both of the written scriptures and all of this oral tradition. And they're saying those two things are at the same level. And so they go on to list what the books of the Bible are, and their Bible books match up to ours, plus books of the Apocrypha that are also included. And they go on to say about these things, if anyone receives not as sacred and canonical the said books entire with all their parts as they have been used to be read in the Catholic Church, which again, that includes the apocryphal books, and as they are contained in the old Latin Vulgate edition, so now they're limiting it particularly to one sort of official translation, and knowingly and deliberately contemn or scorn or reject the traditions aforesaid, okay? The Bible as they define it with the apocryphal books and all these other traditions, they say, if you do not receive all of that as sacred and canonical, let him be anathema. So, if you're here today, and you hold to Sola Scriptura, you reject the Apocrypha, you do not believe that extra-biblical traditions are authoritative, you actually are still under the curse of the Roman Catholic Church. That's a significant hill to die on. If you've got this massively powerful ecclesiastical organization telling you you're under the curse of God, because you don't accept these traditions, right? We had better understand something of what we believe and why we believe it. And that's what we want to do this morning. What does this mean, sola scriptura, and where does it come from? Let me begin with a few definitions, two of them that are pretty standard. And the first one is short, but so helpful. This is from theologian Heinrich he says, the only source and norm of all Christian knowledge is the Holy Scripture. In other words, the only place where we get divinely revealed truth and also the only norm or standard by which we judge all other claims to truth is the Holy Scripture. That's it. There's sola scriptura. But here is a longer definition. This is from after the Reformation and the work of the English Puritans in the Westminster Confession, quote, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from scripture. There's that idea of those irresistible logical conclusions also being included in our definition of what the Bible teaches. But they say the whole counsel of God is included in the Bible's teaching, whether explicit or implicit. And then they expand and they say, unto which nothing 
at any time is to be added. Don't add to the Word of God. Whether by, quote-unquote, new revelations of the Spirit, God told me something, right? Or by the traditions of men. But they say, nevertheless, we acknowledge the illumination of the Spirit of God. So God himself has to help you perceive what is there and embrace it to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things that are revealed in the Word. And that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and government of the church, common to human actions and societies, which are to be ordered by the light of nature. In other words, God hasn't spelled everything out, and you've got to use your common sense to figure out, practically speaking, how to work out certain things, particularly when it comes to the government of the church. Not just common sense, like observing how life works in the order as God has established it, but also Christian prudence, which is a way of talking about discernment, according to the general rules of the word, which are always to be observed. So, it's a pretty complex and nuanced statement there. The authority itself is the scripture. God's word doesn't speak directly to everything. We can't be sure about some things. God enables us by spirit to accept what is there, and then also we use our own mind to work out the practical details in some cases. But that is the starting point for what you're going to see then worked out in all the doctrines that they're trying to defend in that confession of faith. Now, you would say, where does this come from? Does the Bible itself actually make this sort of claim about sola scriptura? And we could go to many places in Scripture to defend the concept, but we're going to focus here on the core passage, which is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 17. You follow along as I read now, starting in verse 14. Paul, of course, is writing to Timothy, and he says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This passage teaches several doctrines that all together form up this concept of sola scriptura. And the first of them is what you probably go to in this verse as the initial thing. It's not the only thing, but it is certainly foundational. That is the doctrine of inspiration. And that's coming from the, particularly from the fact that these are called sacred writings, which refers to things that are unique because they came from God, and then the specific statement that these writings are breathed out by God. The word inspiration traditionally was used for that. It's really not the clearest term, and so I like that our translation has just given us the literal here, breathed out by God. That is a metaphor that is saying something hugely significant about the Bible. Think about your own breath. Especially the colder it gets here into the winter, and as we're outside on a cold day, you can actually see something of somebody's breath, this little white puff of air. And when I'm walking along and I observe you, and maybe there's two or three other people around you, and I see this little puff real quick coming 
from your direction and from your mouth, I don't say that came from that guy over there. The point is, your breath comes from inside of you, right? Their breath comes from inside of them. And of course, it's our breath that we use to talk and to put out words, right? Very much connected with the idea of communication. And the point is that ultimately, the words we find in the Bible were not the product of somebody's imagination. Or as Peter says, the product of their private interpretation, like they were just really working hard to interpret life in the world and figure stuff out, and this is what they came up with. It says, no, they were born along through this supernatural influence of the Spirit. What resulted from them was actually the Word of God. It was His speech. He said it. He put it out there. That is the point of this language. That is what we mean by inspiration. And doctrine number two then follows from that, that if it is sourced in God, then it is inerrant. In other words, it reflects his own character. The character of the one who spoke determines the character of the things he says. And we could defend that at length. Every time, really, the Bible describes some speech of God as the truth. That's what inerrancy is referring to. That in their original writings, the words of Scripture are entirely truthful, without mistakes. They will not lead you astray. They will not say something off base that needs to be corrected. They have no errors. That's the second concept here. And number three is the idea that Scripture is fundamentally clear. God is a communicator and all-wise. He knows what to say, how to say it, and he can effectively communicate so people can understand it. That doesn't mean that there aren't some things in the Bible that are difficult to interpret, particularly for us who are so far removed from the original setting of Scripture. That doesn't mean we're not going to get into debates, particularly about what is or isn't a necessary conclusion from the Bible. But the core truths of Scripture, the basic teachings of whatever book, are accessible to the average person. People who can read are able to study this and process it and come to an understanding of the basic message that is there. In fact, you have a little pointer to that in that he says, you've known these things since you were a child. Right? It didn't take a seminary degree. It didn't take the Pope, to tell you what these mean, these things mean. Your mother, your grandmother brought you up teaching these truths of Scripture, and you've understood them even from your childhood. Next, the Bible is not only inspired, inerrant, clear, it is also, as a result, authoritative. It exercises authority over us because it did come from the Lord. In fact, verse 16 indicates that when it says they are profitable for various things. In other words, the Bible has the ability to tell you, has the role and position of telling you what to believe, doctrine. It requires that you believe certain things. It also has the ability and the authority to tell you what not to believe, to tell you where you've gone off course, whether in your thinking or in your behavior, right? It, it can also correct you. It can also reprove you. 
And the Bible then, fourthly, we're told, will also train you up in a way of life that more and more conforms to the standards of God. That's the idea of training in righteousness. In other words, when the Bible has spoken to something about what you're supposed to believe or what you're supposed to do, you don't get to say, I have another opinion. You don't get to say, yeah, but this other thing makes sense to me. You are bound to submit to whatever it teaches. That is what we mean by the Bible being authoritative. And then there is the key point that the Bible is sufficient, which gets us more specifically to sola scriptura. Now, we've got we to be careful about how we define this term as well. When we say the Bible is sufficient, sometimes we'll say, like, the Bible is everything we need. Well, not really in the absolute sense. There are a lot of things you need for life that the Bible just doesn't get into at all. It doesn't tell you, for example, right, and your desire this morning was to eventually get here to worship God and hear from his word. The Bible didn't tell you what to have for breakfast or what to wear or how to drive your car. And if your car broke down, the Bible doesn't tell you how to fix it. The Bible, if you couldn't come this morning and you're watching on live stream because you're sick, the Bible doesn't tell you how to get better from that sickness, what medication or what treatment to take. And as you wanted to worship the Lord through your giving, but you have to have a job to have some money to put in the plate, the Bible didn't tell you what you're supposed to do for a living and how to make money and even in the New Testament, especially, how much of that money to give. The Bible just does not give you a lot of detailed instructions about a whole bunch of things that form up your daily life, and there are many things it doesn't speak to at all. So when we say the Bible is sufficient, we're not saying in, in an absolute or exhaustive sense it's all that we need. In fact, you need more than the Bible even to understand the Bible, right? You have to be able to read. And maybe somebody taught you how to read with verses of Scripture, but maybe not. You went to school or your mother taught you, and there are all kinds of resources and tactics and strategies to help you put words together so that you could define them, uh, define the words to begin with, and then put them together in sentences and paragraphs and make sense of this, right? The Bible doesn't, doesn't close, and then you find an appendix with a manual that says how to read or even hermeneutics, how to interpret the Bible. Okay. These are the kinds of things we learn from common experience and common communication. So what then does it mean that the Bible is sufficient? What we mean by that doctrine is that Scripture has all the divine words that we need in order to be right with God and to live for him, that is to live for his glory. Everything God wanted to say so that you could come to know him through Jesus Christ and so that you would have at least the norms, the patterns, the principles, whatever you want to call it, that are foundational to making God-honoring choices, the Bible is sufficient. Here is how one theologian puts it. Scripture contains all the divine words needed for any aspect of human life. In other words, if God wanted to speak directly to a topic, he worked that into the Bible. You don't need to be searching for, from some individual or for some church or tradition additional divine 
words. Or here's a little bit longer, quote, The scriptures are sufficient in the sense that they are the only inspired and inerrant words of God that we need in order to know the way of salvation and the way of obedience. And that's coming directly from this passage. Now, let me expand on that a little bit. These three S's have always helped me to kind of package this up. In this text, he says, first of all, in verse 15, that from a childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation. The Bible gives you whatever truth you need in order to be saved, rescued from your sin, delivered from that so that you can enjoy a restored relationship with God. And by the way, in this context, he's actually talking about the Old Testament that Timothy grew up learning. So that whatever people in past times had about the Lord, about his way of salvation, was enough for them. They didn't have the New Testament. That's a distinction called the, 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 the general sufficiency and the more specific sufficiency of Scripture for any particular age. So here is Timothy, or here's anybody living in Old Testament times. Well, you remember when Jesus was talking to the people of his day, and told the story about the rich man and Lazarus, and, 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 and the rich man was told, no, Lazarus is not going to come back from the dead. They have Moses and the prophets. If they don't believe them, forget about it. That was enough for them in that stage to come to a knowledge of how to be saved. And, of course, we have way more from our New Covenant standpoint that fills us out with great detail as to how we may be saved. That is one thing the Bible is sufficient for. You don't need a church to add to that. You don't need some religious authority to give you some further nuance about that. The Bible contains it all when it comes to your salvation. Secondly, when it comes to those statements in verse 16 that it's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness, that's not talking about salvation like our, the, the part about being made righteous positionally in Christ. That's talking about our sanctification. That's the second S. The Bible in terms of the general norms it teaches, is sufficient for our sanctification. It includes everything the Lord wanted to say when it comes to that topic. And number three, it is also sufficient for our service. That is, the norms and guidance we need in order to serve the Lord effectively and have a role redemptively in people's lives, which is from the 17th verse, that the man of God may be competent, listen to this, equipped for every good work. That speaks to the divine guidance we need in order to serve the Lord effectively in life. It's all here in Scripture. Salvation, sanctification, service, the Bible is sufficient for all of those categories. Nothing is said in this letter about ecclesiastical authorities adding to what the Bible teaches Nothing is said about the need for a pope figure to tell you how to rightly interpret scripture. And certainly nothing is said here about actually coming up with new stuff in addition to what can be seen in scripture. In fact, the sufficient word speaks to that topic. When it says, Deuteronomy 4.2, you shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take away from it. And the Bible ends with that same issue in Revelation 22. 
I warn everyone who hears that if anyone adds to them, to the words of the prophecy of this book, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of the prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and the holy city described in this book. If you want to talk about who's under a curse, a divine curse. People are under a divine curse if they add to the scriptures. That's what, that's what that passage in Revelation says. a very serious matter. To deny the sufficiency of scripture. Now there is one more element to consider in this doctrine. And that is what was mentioned in the confession of faith. The illumination of the spirit that is required in order for this to actually, you might say, catch fire in our hearts for us to really get it particularly in the sense that we believe it we yield our lives to it we want it we begin to see how it is authoritative we're willing to submit to it that's not exactly stated in this verse but it is it is stated in in a certain way in chapter 2 and verse 7 of of second timothy that's where paul says to timothy think over what i say for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. In other words, I'm giving you this biblical truth in this particular book. I really want you to meditate on it. But meditation isn't going to cut it exactly. You actually need God himself to do a work in your life where that clicks with you. And you really get what I'm saying and you act on it. In 1 Corinthians 2, that work is attributed specifically to the Holy Spirit who works to change the natural person so that he comes to understand and welcome the things given by God in Scripture. So, what does all this mean? I've given you six words. Inspiration, inerrancy, clarity, authority, sufficiency, illumination. All six of those are involved in the Reformation doctrine of sola scriptura. All of them have to be embraced if we're going to be true to this concept. And these men saw it as so foundational that they were willing to risk their entire lives for that simple truth that the Bible is the only source of divine verbal revelation and the only norm to judge theology. Now, if that is true... What are the implications? In other words, it could be pretty easy for us, maybe growing up around these things and affirming these truths, and they're so, they're so presupposed in our minds that maybe we hardly ever think about them anymore. Okay? But this has, this has enormous implications. Let's think about some of the implications. That's what I want to end on today. The most obvious implication would have to do with the gospel itself. If the Bible teaches justification by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, then, folks, any other understanding of the gospel has to be rejected as false. The Reformers emphasized that connection between sola scriptura and the doctrines of the gospel. And that's why they were willing to reject the Roman Catholic teaching that our justification before the Lord is achieved through our use of the sacraments and through our penance and good works. 
We cannot accept that, not only because it doesn't work, but fundamentally because it's entirely contrary to what the Bible actually says. If the Bible is the determiner of everything, that has to be rejected. And so sola scriptura is really inseparable from those other solas that are all about defining the gospel. Here's another implication that the reformers would draw. They would say, no, the Bible should not be restricted to the Latin language. And it it is not that the church authorities exclusively are allowed to interpret the Bible. If the Bible is so determinative of everything, then everybody ought to have access to it. So we're going to translate the Bible into the common languages of the peoples of the world so that everybody can study it for themselves and experience its ministry through the work of the Holy Spirit. And that doesn't mean that people should ignore the roles of pastors and teachers or the ministry of the church at large. Again, Martin Luther, John Calvin, all these guys were theologians and pastors. There is a role to be played there. But people should still have for themselves direct access to the scriptures. After all, another Reformation truth is that we are all priests before the Lord, and we ought to have the opportunity to meditate on scripture personally and interpret it. And so the whole area of the widespread translation of the Bible into the language of the world, why we have an English Bible, is owing to the work of the Reformers. Praise God for them and their commitment to that. So those would be two implications that they themselves really emphasized. But I want to share with you that there are other implications as well. As I thought about this topic this week, I went back and read through 2 Timothy just to remind myself of the context of the passage we looked at. And it struck me that right in this letter, Paul is actually teasing out some implications of sola scriptura. This is not simply a doctrine we need to affirm in order to be orthodox. It has life-changing implications. And let me share with you these thoughts and read some verses. I won't take the time to develop them very much. Number one, sola scriptura implies that we should be confident in scripture. And I'm getting that from what Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, 8, 9. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Even though I'm here in jail, people are trying to keep me from being out there You cannot stop the word of God. His spirit has all kinds of ways to get it out there in the world and to use it in people's lives. Don't be bashful, Timothy. Don't be afraid. Be confident. Give your life to these things. We saw some of that confidence in that that hymn we sang, A Mighty Fortress. I love the, the manliness of that song and how bold he is, and I'm going to stand up in front of Satan and the whole world of demons because one little word from God can fell all those forces of evil. That's the spirit. Number two, sola scriptura. We must affirm everything scripture teaches and reject anything scripture contradicts. Yes, the gospel, but whatever else the Bible may address. And Really, this is the big point in 2 Timothy, all this emphasis on you need to be faithful to the scriptures, you need to go after false teaching, 
2 Timothy 1.13, follow the pattern of the sound word you've heard. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Chapter 2, verse 14, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Then there's all this other stuff he's supposed to avoid. The same thing in 2 Timothy 2, 23 to 26, don't have anything to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. Don't be quarrelsome, but you need to be able to teach. Correcting your opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. So Timothy, devote your life to being, particularly in church leadership, to being a careful student of God's word. You're not going to understand everything. You're not going to have all your questions answered, but to the degree that you are persuaded that the Bible affirms something, you must embrace it. And to the degree that somebody out there, some message out there is contradicting what the Bible clearly teaches, you ought to take the the opportunity and be bold in order to correct those who oppose. There really is a kind of a militant edge to New Testament Christianity. And we understand that in past generations, maybe some of that was overdone. And people even added some things to the scriptures and presented them authoritatively. But let us not respond to that by backing off in our commitment to speaking forthrightly what the Bible actually says and correcting false ideas out there. This is going to have a determinative result for the positions that we take and even the, the relationships that we take as far as church life is concerned, especially. Sola Scriptura implies that we must affirm everything Scripture teaches and reject anything it contradicts. Number three, Sola Scriptura implies that Scripture should be preached. You realize what the very next thing is that Paul says after he said all Scripture is inspired and profitable. Chapter 4, verse 1, just like cut out the chapter division. The very next thing is, so Timothy, I charge you to preach the word. This word is so determinative of everything that you need to give your life to proclaiming it, no matter what anybody says or how they respond, in season, out of season, the ministry the Bible had in your life, now you turn around and seek that ministry in other people's lives through it, reprove, rebuke, exhort, with complete teaching and patience. Those ideas from chapter 3, verse 7, uh, 16 and 17 are now repeated here as far as what is going to go on in the preaching of the word. And folks, that has everything to do with what I'm doing right now and what we gather here every week to do. Expository preaching is an implication of sola scriptura. If the Bible is our one and only authority, then we want to know what it says. With the wording that it says it, in the proportion that it gives it, in the sequence that it reveals God's truth, that is what expository preaching is attempting to do, to just put the word of God out there plainly as it is actually revealed verse by verse, book by book. And I love the story of how Calvin was committed to that. You may remember that he had kind of a rocky relationship with the, with the political leaders in the city of Geneva. And at a certain point, they actually kicked him out. They banished him from the city. And people might have thought, his ministry's over. What's going to happen next? God worked so that three years later, the relationship improved, and they brought him back. And what did he do? He got up the next Sunday, and he began to preach opening his Bible to the very verse where he had left off three years before. 
No drama. He didn't skip a beat. I'm just going to go back to doing what I did. What was, where was I? What was the next passage here? And he just continued his work through the scriptures that way. Sola Scriptura implies that the scriptures, the whole counsel of God, should be preached. And not just preached, but preachers have a responsibility by God's grace to raise up a generation of other preachers who will carry this forward. And this is also the book that has the verse, 2 Timothy 2.2, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And Paul himself was committed to the point of death for this. And yet even in these dire circumstances, he is by... Uh, he, he is about to be executed, like John Huss. He's looking back at other experiences, and he says, The Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lies. Here's this man facing the opposition of all hell against him, and he's like, the message has got to go out. God saved me the last time so this could go out. The scriptures must be preached. Number four and finally, sola scriptura implies that God's people should study the scriptures fervently. Here again, we can affirm this as a creed, but what is our actual relationship to the Bible personally? And Paul ends this letter on that note. You remember this where he's wrapping up 2 Timothy he wants Timothy to come visit him, and he says in chapter 4, verse 13, When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. His round-the-world preaching ministry might have been impeded by being in jail, right? But he says, I don't want my personal study of Scripture to be impeded by this. They let me have books here. You bring me some books and the parchments referring to copies of the scriptures. That's my heart. That's what I want to be doing while I'm in jail. I want to study the Bible. I want to feed on God's word. If it is from God and it is sufficient and it's scripture alone, the authority, then my life is centered on it. My mind is filled with it. I devote time to studying it because I treasure it so much. So, sola scriptura implies that that kind of fervency is our attitude as well. I want you to look at the 